One day, I was sitting with Manny in his apartment, and the subject of his mom came up. She lives in the Bronx, too, about a 15-minute drive from Manny's place. How often do you speak to your mother now? I speak to her daily, you know, and I help her out. So, you know, and unfortunately, she's losing her vision. She's going blind. I mean, my mom is like 95% blind, 90, not about 90% blind. I try to give her an eye. What did you give her? One of my eyes. Because, you know, I figured, hey, I got two eyes. I, I'm dexterous. I shoot with both hands. I give her an eye. I mean, you know, if you give a kidney, we do kidney transplants. We do lung transplants. We do heart transplants. Hell, we even do liver transplants. So I said, well, why can't we do an eye transplant? You actually she, asked the doctor? I asked eight doctors. And they were in shock and in awe. I tried to, you know, genuinely give her an eye. But uh, all the eye doctors uh, wouldn't do it. That whole story about the eye, it felt a little over the top, possibly embellished. I mean, did Manny actually try to get a doctor, eight doctors, to remove a working eye from his head and give it to his mom? Listening to him, I have to say, I wondered if he was just making the story up on the spot to impress me. Every now and then I'd ask him to put me in touch with his mom, but he never would. And then, one day, I was talking to Manny on the phone. Are you driving now? Unfortunately, yes. Where are you headed? Uh, I'm actually uh, picking up my mom to help her out. Oh, is that her? I heard someone in the background. Yeah, it's my mom. Say hi, mom. Hi, how are you? Good afternoon, sir. This is a reporter. Good afternoon. How are you? I've heard so much about you. Thank you, sir. I hope good things. Thank you. We exchanged pleasantries for a few minutes, and then, without prompting... He wanted to give me an eye. Can you believe that? She launched into this story. Who takes an eye? Who takes an eye from their kid? He just took me to Florida recently um, in May to get stem cells, but it didn't work out. And he worked so hard, and he paid for me, the dog, my husband. He put me in a beautiful hotel in a very nice... <laughs> but the procedure didn't work. I'm sorry. Anyway, I think that's about it. I've just been very blessed. Compared to other people and their kids, I've just been very blessed. Over the months I spent with him, I'd hear a lot of stories like that story about the eye. Stories with Manny cast as the hero, striving to do the impossible. And I'd often think to myself, he's got to be making it up. But then... I'd speak to someone else, or I'd dig up some new piece of information. And I'd remember, just because his stories sound made up, doesn't necessarily mean they are. From Gimlet Media, I'm Saki Kanafo, and this is Conviction. After presenting the prosecutor with all of his evidence of Pedro's innocence and getting nowhere, Manny realized he had to try a new tactic to get Pedro out of jail. It wasn't enough to just build a case for Pedro. He had to build a case against the cops he believed were targeting Pedro. And there was one cop in particular who he was convinced was behind it all. Detective David Terrell. All right, we're off. It's in front of 
Uh, I'll, I'll sit between you in the back. My producer Meg and I climb into Manny's car, actually his mom's car, a sensible navy blue Honda. Manny's car, the silver Corvette convertible, is in the shop. Hi, Megan. Hey, how are you? Oh, it's been a real crazy day. Um, just been nonstop. We drive over to Pedro's neighborhood. It sits in the South Bronx, the poorest congressional district in the country. It's about seven on a cool summer evening, and people are out and about sitting on the stoops, mingling on the sidewalks. Manny's here to find out what the neighborhood can tell him about Detective Terrell. Can you tell us what you're wearing on this mission? Yep, I'm wearing my black, black ops jacket. It has the American Eagle with the flag going across of it. It says Black Ops Private Investigators. Black Ops Private Investigators is Manny's company. Aside from a couple buddies who occasionally help him out, he's the only investigator. Manny's got a picture with him, a blurry image from a surveillance video recorded in Jessica's apartment building. It's a picture of Detective Terrell. He's a black guy, tall, bald, with a powerful build and an intense expression on his face. Manny's plan is to show the picture to as many people as he can and see if any of them have had run-ins with Terrell, too. Let's go get these guys. So you might think a private eye would want to blend into the crowd, you know, slink into the shadows. That's not Manny's style. As soon as he gets out of the car, he makes a beeline for these kids who are sitting on a stoop down the street. We're still scrambling to catch up with him when he starts shouting questions at them. They take one look at him and us, and then they take off running. It's not hard to guess why they're scared. First of all, Manny looks like a cop. He talks like a cop, walks like a cop, in a neighborhood where a lot of people say they've been harassed by cops. And as if that wasn't enough, he's got that black jacket that says investigator in bold white letters across the chest. And then there's the fact that my producer and I are there, two white people with microphones. I don't think we're putting anyone at ease. But nothing seemed to bother Manny. He kept charging up the people with his chest puffed out, holding out his picture of Terrell. And people kept running from him. But he just stuck with his strategy, barreling down the street, working his mouth like a politician canvassing for votes. I'm a black guy from investigators. Can I show you a picture? I'm about a cop that's harassing women and their children. I want to see if you know this guy. I follow Manny past a storefront church and a liquor store past a discount emporium called Forever Deal, past a check-cashing place and a mom-and-pop Jamaican restaurant. A few generations ago, back in the 60s, this street was the heart of a thriving jazz scene with clubs like the Apollo Bar and the Blue Morocco. Then the economy of the South Bronx collapsed, and people who could afford to leave mostly did, and every last one of the jazz clubs closed its doors. The young people who stayed behind were part of the generation that invented hip-hop, in fact, there are people who say that hip-hop was invented at parties right here, on the very stretch of Boston Road where I'm walking with Manny right now. Hold on one second. Can you lower that one second? I'm going to show you a picture. Lower that down for a minute, uh, Lower it down for a minute. First of all, I'm Prime Investigator Manuel Gomez. I want to show you something. Hi. Okay. You know this guy? I'm standing with Manny and a couple guys who are hanging outside their apartment building, 
Manny shows them the photo of Terrell. They say they don't recognize him, but like a lot of people we talk to, they tell us that the local cops, officers from the 42nd Precinct, are always picking on them for petty things, playing their music outside, walking through the park after dark, just hanging out on the sidewalk with friends, like they're doing right now, could lead to an arrest for, quote, unlawful assembly. Why do you think they do it? I guess they feel like we ain't got no wins, no type of wins. We ain't got no wins, man. Can, can you say more about that? What, what do you mean by wins? Wins, like, we, we can't win this. It's like a war. We can't beat this war. They, they the winners. They on top. But why do they want to win it? Like, what's in it for them? I don't know. I guess they want a clean street, but that never happened because we live here. We don't have backyards. We can't go sit on the patio. Can't go to the park. The park closed at a certain time. Especially in the summertime, this is when it's the worst. Some, some of them are saying. The summertime is the worst because. What if you ain't got no air conditioning or fan? You want to come outside and get some cool air, right? Summer. Why you can't sit on your own stoop? I spent a day canvassing the neighborhood with Manny, and I heard a lot of stories like this stories about police harassment, but not much about Terrell specifically. I started to have that familiar feeling, that donating the eye feeling. Maybe Manny was exaggerating. Maybe Terrell wasn't really as notorious as Manny made him out to be. But then I went out with Manny again, and I met these guys. I've been going over since I was was like eight, eight years old. It's five or six young men, late teens, early 20s. Manny shows him the photo of Terrell, and they all start talking at once. He targets certain people in the area, you get what I'm saying? Like like certain just people that he knew. People that he, that he see and he's he been feel locking like, up since young. Because he know he know what goes on in the area, so he just feel like anybody he see around here yeah, got target, something to do with target. it. Like yeah, 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 that's the type of person yeah, officer Terrell is like. Yeah. Off rip. Like I've been since young, since juvenile. We're standing outside a bodega on Webster Avenue, about a half mile from where Jessica and Pedro live. The guys start texting their friends and the crowd starts to grow. Everyone has a story about Terrell, but they seem surprised that anyone's asking about him. Did you ever expect that anyone be, would be investigating this? Um, no. Why not? No, because he was getting away with it for so long. He'd been doing it for years, like years. He watched us grow up. He'd been corrupt for so long, like he was doing this for years since like, yes. since we was children in middle school. Like, I could really talk about a lot. Since we was in middle school, this man's been coming to our school harassing us, locking us up for stuff we ain't do. He's crooked, like, all the way. You've known he's been doing this for years. Yeah, yeah, but we couldn't come forward because we don't know. We're like, you never, you never thought about filing a lawsuit. I, I didn't. I'm sorry, sir, but I didn't know where to go. Like, I didn't know how to take it. So that's why when y'all we seen y'all, we so happy we seen y'all. Like, so we could tell our story. Like, I, I really want to tell my story about this man. This man is crazy. We talked to them for a couple hours. At a certain point, some of us moved down the street to get some food. All right, so let's go sit down and get this man a Welch's before he passes out on me. All right, come on. All right, let me just go. As Manny banters with a lady at the counter, one of the guys, the smallest one in the group, notices the picture of Terrell lying face up on the table and quickly covers it with an envelope. Can you explain what you just did? Can you explain what you just did? Oh, we, we don't like his face because he's scary, so we have to put the, the envelope over his face. We don't want to see that. Right. We don't want to see his face. Explain what you I didn't see it a lot when I was younger. 
it's myths in the hood about him too. Like it's really stuff that people tell you growing up. Like yo, don't run from Officer Terrell because when he catch you. I'm not gonna like it. They're gonna be wrestling. That's a fact. <laughs> what do you mean, miss? Stuff like don't say Bloody Mary in the mirror, like like that. Like if that, if people tell you if you run from Officer to Red when he catch you, you're probably not gonna be able to speak about it. That going front. Like he was the boogeyman. Like he was the boogeyman. Basically, like the real, the real he, he was the, he was the, the community boogeyman. Like around these communities, that the area he controlled, he was the boogeyman around that area. Like. Coming to, to, he's known that every local schools, every you can corner, ask everywhere. Every How you think we know him, sir? Manny had been going on canvassing missions like this for months at this point, and he talked to at least nine other young men who had similar things to say about Terrell. Time now is 2.18. This is Private Investigator Manuel Gomez. Today is October 3rd, 2016. Some of them told Manny their stories on video. In this one, a kid tells Manny a story of getting arrested by the cops and brought into the 42nd Precinct where he says he was beaten up by Terrell. Did you get hurt? Yes. What were your injuries? A broken nose and an eye fracture. So let me see. Is this the uh, injury to your eye where the scar is? Yes. That's where you fractured your eye? Yes. And he broke your nose, this bump right here? Yes. Did you were taken to the hospital after he did that to you? Yes. Where did he beat you up at? In the 42nd prison. Inside the cell? Yes. Manny showed us a bunch of these videos. The young men in these videos accused Terrell of beating them up or threatening them, or pressuring them to pin crimes on one another. In his lawsuit, Terrell would say he never brutalized anyone. He described claims like these as false. And he would point out to his lawyer that when some of the young men who were making these claims tried to sue him, most of their lawsuits got dismissed, including one from the young man you just heard. I'll talk more about that later in the series. Manny, for his part, says he felt certain that these young men were telling the truth. And he saw these stories as proof that Terrell shouldn't be on the streets arresting people. Manny believed that if he went public with this information, it would destroy Terrell's credibility and force the DA to finally drop Pedro's charges. Cops in a certain Bronx neighborhood are terrorizing teenagers, making false arrests. And so, in the fall of 2016, Manny began attacking Terrell in the local media. Whenever Manny dug up a story about Terrell, He'd pass it along to his contacts at the TV news. Several teens and young men in the neighborhood tell the I-team they've been terrorized by Officer Terrell and other cops in the 42nd Precinct. Punches kids, he grabbed them up, slammed them. At one point, he said he found three other women like Jessica, mothers who felt Terrell sexually harassed them. In tonight's I-team report, investigative reporter Sarah Wallace joins us now with more stunning video from a family who says they are under siege. Bottom line is if they don't have sex with them, he goes after their kids. Over the course of a month, five different stories about Terrell came out in the news. Terrell would later deny all these claims in his lawsuit. He said Manny was behind all of it. And he blamed Manny and all the media that Manny drummed up for what happened to him next. All right, now to a 19 exclusive. For weeks, we've been investigating officers accused of false arrests at the Bronx NYPD precinct. And On December 5th, 2016, just three weeks after the first story aired, a reporter for the local NBC affiliate announced that the police department had taken Terrell out of the 42nd precinct, out of the Bronx, and stuck him in a job escorting prisoners in a Manhattan courthouse. He has now been pulled off the street and reassigned to the court system. For Manny, this was a big win. Terrell was off the streets and out of the precinct. The police department said they were investigating Terrell for an incident that had nothing to do with Manny's claims. 
but that didn't stop Manny from taking credit for it. But none of this really mattered for Pedro, because the prosecutors still hadn't dropped the charges against him. Pedro was still sitting in jail, and Manny didn't seem any closer to getting him out. Manny had been on the case for months. Nothing he'd tried so far had worked. But he still had one more move left. He told Jessica there was one more person who might be able to set Pedro free. One person he believed could be the key to the whole case. I said to uh, Jessica, I gotta get him. And I promised. I said, I gotta find He's 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 my white whale. That's coming up after the break. So by now, Manny had found four people who said Pedro didn't shoot the gun. He'd found the victim, who claimed he didn't see Pedro shoot him either. Their stories proved, at least in Manny's mind, that Pedro had been locked up by a crooked cop, and he'd convinced some reporters to bring those accounts to light. But he still hadn't gotten Pedro out of jail. He had to find another way. He thought there was one more person he could talk to who might turn the case on its head. The prosecution's own witness. The person who supposedly saw Pedro commit the crime. Now, normally, finding this person would have been nearly impossible. If you remember, the prosecution didn't name any witnesses. They didn't put those names in any of the documents they turned over. They didn't have to, thanks to that blindfold law. But Manny claimed he had a source in the DA's office, someone who owed him some favors. And he said this source had leaked him the name of the prosecution's key witness. That witness, according to Manny's source, was a young man named Stephen Williams. According to Manny, Stephen Williams had fingered Pedro as the culprit in at least three cases. First a robbery, then a shooting. And now here was this third case, where again, Stephen Williams was saying he saw Pedro shoot somebody. This Stephen Williams, whoever he was, seemed to have an uncanny knack for turning up whenever and wherever Pedro was allegedly committing a crime. And to make things even more suspicious to Manny, those first two crimes that Stephen Williams had allegedly pinned on Pedro? Both of those cases had been dismissed. The charges didn't stick. Manny had a hunch about Stephen Williams. He says he was pretty sure that Williams hadn't actually witnessed all those crimes. He suspected that the cops had just bullied him into saying that he did. If this hunch proved true, it would destroy the prosecution's case against Pedro. But the only way to confirm it was to talk to Stephen Williams and Manny couldn't find him. He says he knocked on hundreds of doors in the neighborhood, asking people if they knew him. But no one did. To Jessica, Pedro's mom, it was starting to seem hopeless. One day I was sitting at a diner with her and Manny. At this point, Pedro had been in Rikers for 11 months. 11 months of Manny searching for Stephen Williams. Jessica was beginning to wonder if Manny was even chasing a real person. There's still one person I want, and I've not been able to get. Stephen Williams. We're never going to get him. That doesn't belong in my vocabulary. Stop that. What about if he doesn't exist, if that's all in Terrell's head? How can you tell he really exists? How many months is that canvassing the area? A year and change. Right. How many kids you bump right. into? I bumped into about 100. How many victims you bump into? 
of the same precinct. Same precinct, 18. I still haven't got Williams. And but I'm not did giving anybody up. mention knowing a Stephen Williams? They all went to school in the same community because it's so school. So how can he exist? And nobody knows who where he lives, where he's at. I understand that. Listen, you gotta remember something. My business, the impossible is usually impossible. Sometimes Manny sounds like he's quoting a catchphrase from one of those old detective shows he loves. You know, Columbo or Kojak or uh, his favorite, Miami Vice. But this was real life. And his plan for winning the case was seeming more and more like a fantasy. After he left the diner, Jessica and I sat there over empty coffee mugs, talking about her family's ordeal. She said their court-appointed lawyer had been pleading with the district attorney to lower Pedro's bail. They have him a $250,000 bill. You understand? So where that leaves us? In the air. You understand? Where it's like, leaves us nowhere. You're smiling right now. I'm, you know what is it? It's like, it's sad. It's sad. Sometimes when you don't want to cry in public, you just smile. You think of something positive in your head. Not to sit here and break down in tears. You understand? You just put a smile in your head. For people like Jessica, who have someone they love stuck in jail, waiting for trial can feel like a constant cycle of hope and disappointment. Once every month or so, Pedro would get brought into court. Each time, Pedro's family thought he might finally go before a jury and have his case actually heard. Remember, he still hadn't been convicted of anything. And his family believed that if his case just went to trial, he'd be found not guilty. But each time, the prosecutor, David Slot, would ask the judge for a delay. David Slot, the office of D. Clark. Mr. Hernandez is before the court. People have indicated at this time that they are requesting a brief adjournment. That, that is my request. And each time, the judge granted the request sending Pedro back to Rikers to wait some more. And then, in June 2017, after many delays and more than 11 months in jail, Pedro was offered a deal that many defendants would have found irresistible. If he pled guilty, he could go home. And that's not all. If he stayed out of trouble for the next five years, the case would be sealed. That meant if anyone looked into his background, they wouldn't find out about it. Pedro had even more incentive to take a deal than most people. One day, I spoke with a guy named Roy Waterman. He's an advocate for criminal justice reform, and he visits Rikers a lot. There's a school inside Rikers called the East River Academy. So traditionally, when I've gone to Rikers, and I've been to Rikers on a nice amount of times and spoken at a nice amount of classes, so most classrooms are very disruptive, and people are walking around making noise, rapping in the corner, beatboxing. It's just really, really a disruptive environment in the school building and I have no idea at all how teachers are trying to teach or able to teach and how people are even who are, who are willing to learn are able to even process any sort of educational anything. On one of his visits, he just finished speaking at a class when the assistant principal came over. And he says, I want to um, 
let you into Professor Hernandez's class. So when he opened up the door, the first thing I seen was Pedro because he was standing up with his glasses and he turned and he had a smile on his face. Um, and like about 11 young people sitting down who are all facing Pedro and he's engaging with these young people. And I was just blown away. Right. Because the teacher was sitting on the side and Pedro was teaching the class and the conversation was based off of like gender roles and um, different occupations. So they had a list of different jobs. So everything from social worker to a construction worker to an MTA worker. But next to it, they said whether it was male or female. They brought up construction work and all the young men said, oh, men, men, men um, work construction. He engaged with them to make them think outside the box like, well, guess what? Like there are women that are working in construction now and there are women who are also involved working in these different levels to help them open up their eyes to realizing that things aren't one way. Pedro was doing that. Never, never have I gone on Rikers and seen everyone sitting at a desk with a paper in front of them and paying attention. Never. Pedro was attracting a lot of attention for his work in the classroom. I heard uh, that you won an award. Yeah, I won an award for leadership from the Board of Education, from the Department of Education. This is Pedro talking to me on the phone from jail. Wow, can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, in school, I got my GED, passed like five tests around now, my regents. So I'm like, I tutor other kids to pass AGD, help them. And they, they gave me a leadership award for, for all the, like, opportunities I've been giving other people, helping them pass their tests, tutoring them what they need to pass, and things like that. Pedro didn't just win that leadership award. He was also nominated for a full college scholarship from an organization called the Posse Foundation. But there was a catch. To interview for the scholarship, he had to be out of jail by early September, which he wouldn't be if the trial kept getting delayed over and over. At one of Pedro's scheduled court appearances around this time, his lawyer brought up the scholarship opportunity before the judge. Um, he has to be um, out of custody by September 1st for that particular day, and I just want the court to be aware of that. And that's kind of why we're trying to track the, the history of this case and see where this case is going and if we can have it resolved in that, in that, that time frame. Well, can we resolve the case? The defense attorney, David Narain, is saying, Judge, can we actually stick to the schedule this time and get my client a trial so he can hopefully be found not guilty and head to school in the fall? And the judge is essentially saying, your client wants out? Well, there's a way to make that happen. How about a plea deal? What kinds of plea deals has Pedro been offered so far? Okay. And what kind of offers have you received? Your Honor, there was an informal offer of a non-incarceratory um, plea with youthful offender status. That's been offered twice. My client's rejected that both times. Is he still rejecting it? Because uh, that will certainly get him out in time to go to school. He's rejected it. And it'll also get him out without a criminal record. He maintains his innocence, Your Honor. I appreciate that. Yeah. He maintains his innocence. But I just want to be clear that he understands from my mouth and all these rewards that he's getting are very impressive. And uh, he's facing up to 15 years to stay in prison. And there will be nothing to derail a plan to go to college and get a scholarship at a 15-year adjustment. It's worth taking a moment to reflect on what's happening here. A trial is one of the most basic rights guaranteed in the Constitution, a primary mechanism for sorting out guilt from innocence. And this judge is telling Pedro that he should seriously consider giving up that right. I just wanted to understand that a trial is a risky operation. 
then he might very well want to take into account the risks associated with trial and the benefits that are offering him of a youthful offender adjudication, which means no criminal record, non-incarcerated sentence, and uh, the opportunity to go ahead and get, get on with his life without the risk of trial. During the course of reporting this story, I spent hours in the Bronx Hall of Justice, and I watched versions of this scene play out more than once. A defendant would stand up in front of the judge, often with his hands in shackles, and the judge would encourage him to take a plea. Part of the reason is the sheer volume of arrests in places like the South Bronx. Throughout New York City each year, there are almost 300,000 arrests and arraignments, but the courts only have enough judges and court staff to take around 600 cases to trial. That means that for every case they can try, there are 500 cases that they can't. That leaves hundreds of thousands of cases that judges and prosecutors have to sweep out of the way. There's basically just two ways they can do it. They can dismiss the case, letting a potential criminal off the hook, or they can push someone to take a plea, leading a potentially innocent person to plead guilty to a crime they didn't commit. One day I heard a judge tell a defendant who didn't want to take a plea that he had hundreds of cases on his docket and he couldn't afford to waste time on a trial. And then he said something like, how can I get you into this new Porsche? It's like he was a car salesman trying to move an expensive model off the lot. But the Porsche, of course, was pleading guilty to a crime the defendant was saying he didn't do. When people are convicted of a crime in this country, it's rarely because they were found guilty in a trial. It's almost always because they took a plea. 94% of felony convictions nationwide are the result of plea deals. In New York City, it's even higher. Spend any time in the Bronx Hall of Justice, and you'll start to feel like justice is a kind of sales job. It's not really about finding the truth. It's all about the deal, the plea deal a deal where one side has almost all the bargaining power. Prosecutors have way more resources and political clout than most defendants. And in New York, thanks to those blindfold laws, they also have way more access to the evidence. And so, over and over, I watched defendants step into the Porsche, their court-appointed defense attorneys holding open the door. The only alternative was waiting in jail for months or maybe years for a trial, they might not have any chance of winning. But that's exactly what Manny wanted Pedro to do. Manny wanted Pedro to turn down the plea deal he'd been offered so that Manny could continue searching for that elusive witness, Stephen Williams. So I had to do the hardest thing ever. I had to go to jail and ask Pedro Hernandez to stay in jail. Okay. That's a big so risk, isn't it? Asking him to it is. In jail. It hurts me because he's in an environment where it's gang infested and, and any day you can get stabbed or shanked. I mean, there's a lot of things going on there that are disgusting. It's a huge risk. Manny's not exaggerating here. Rikers is notoriously violent, even by the standards of jails. People who've been jailed there call it gladiator school. They say if you aren't part of a gang, chances are you'll be attacked. And if you don't join, the attacks will just continue. And Pedro told me that's what happened to him. He told me he was repeatedly assaulted during his time in Rikers. What, what are your days like? Yeah, like, 
I'm not I'm not a suicidal person, but I'd rather be dead than being in his. This is Pedro again. The way the Rikers phone system worked, we could only speak for six minutes at a time before we got cut off. But he didn't need much time to sum up how he felt about his situation. There's fights ahead, there's, but there's a lot of fights. There'd be a lot of gang assaults ahead. It's like, like, I don't know. Every day I wake up to the same thing. Like you could say I'm institutionalized right now. I wake up, I know the food schedule of Rikers Island. I know what they give Monday to Sunday. Everything. I know when they come to wash our clothes. I know, like, I know everything by the back of my head now. Pedro knew there was one simple way he could put an end to all this. He could take that plea deal and go home and have a chance at a college scholarship. Or he could stay there in jail with a constant violence, trusting that Manny would be able to find that key witness. I didn't have that final piece to get checkmates. That's what I wanted. And so Manny went to Rikers to make his case to Pedro. Hold on. Resist the pressure to take that deal. Don't get in the goddamn Porsche. And Pedro agreed. At the end of their conversation, Manny made a video to send home to Jessica. Go. Andy Selma, I love you. And I'm good in here. I'm, I'm not going to stress out. I'm going to wait till September 6th, and we're going to beat this case together. I love you, Andy Selma. And, you know, you spoke with me on... And I spoke with Gomez on everything. On my strategy. On his strategy, and it's a go. And you agree with it? Yeah, I agree with it. All right. I said, what about Abuela? You know, I said, Abuela, what's wrong with you? Yeah, and he said, well, I love you. Okay. What about your sister? Yeah, I love all of y'all. Uh, what about the little one? The yeah. fuck, bro? You forgetting the little one? <laughs> no, I said, I love all of them. Okay. All right, we good? And he said, yeah. All right. She says she loves you. I talked with Jessica after she got this video. You might think a mom who's been waiting nearly a year for her son to come home from jail would be sad to hear that she had to wait even longer. But what I heard in Jessica's voice wasn't sadness. It was anger. We were sure he didn't commit this. So to let him go down in exchange for his liberty, make him label himself for something he didn't do? No. No. Why? Why? Why, why kill another life? Why kill another kid that could be somebody in life? You understand? That could make it higher than this, than, than, than the low-income neighborhood. Why? It, it's not fair. And if us as parents keep letting our kids get labeled, and so on and so on, the generations continue, we're not going nowhere. We're never going to go nowhere. Pedro officially turned down the deal in early July. Now all his hopes were pinned on Manny, on him finding a kid, Stephen Williams, who they weren't even sure existed. On the next episode of Conviction, Manny's search for Stephen Williams takes an unexpected turn. Conviction is a production of Gimlet Media. It's hosted by me, Saki Kanafo, and produced by Meg Driscoll, Chris Neary, and Saeed Tijan Thomas. Our editors are Alex Bloomberg, Jorge Just, Lynn Levy, and Jessica Weisberg. Mixing by Sam Baer and Haley Shaw. Music by Haley Shaw. 
Our credits music is Hard Times by Curtis Mayfield, performed by Baby Huey. This series was developed with help from producer Kate Osborne, and it grew out of a collaboration with the New York Times Magazine. Special thanks to my editor there, Mike Benoit. The series was also made in partnership with Type Investigations. Special thanks to Esther Kaplan and fact-checker Evan Malmgren. Thanks also to Allah Hassan and John Burkhardt. If you like the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find out about the series. And I'm sick and tired of having so many hearts.